a window, a window into the heart of God and into the heart of Christ. The past several years, we've been taking a look at the seven sayings from around the cross of Calvary. And today we're going to look at the window of the love that questions. In Mark chapter 15, beginning in about, mm, I'm going to say verse 33, it says, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. On the day that Jesus died, the scriptures record Seven statements, seven windows, seven lessons from around the cross for those who desire to peek into the heart of God and into the heart of Jesus. And the conversations may have been heard in part or whole by those who gathered around the cross that day. A hardened criminal, a seasoned soldier, the public at large, a group of women, a religious leader. One saying is given and repeated in Matthew and Mark, three in Luke and three in John. All seven sayings fall into two groups, the first three into one group, the last four into another group. Three were spoken to God the Father by Jesus the Son. And four of them were spoken to those who were closest to him. Briefly, the first window and the first word is found in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. The second window is found in Luke 23, 43. Today you will be with me in paradise. The third window is found in John Chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. The fourth window, the one that we just read, is also found in Matthew 27, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fifth window is found in John 19, 28. I thirst. The sixth window is found in John 19, 30. It's finished. The seventh window is found in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, where Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Three of the seven sayings are prayers. The first, the fourth, and the seventh sayings are addressed to God the Father. The last, the final words of Jesus are taken from the Old Testament. We have an insight into the source of his comfort as he bows his head and dies Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. As Jesus commits his spirit to God, he brings all believers near and into the hands of God. The first window allows us to see 
the kind of love that forgives. And the second window allows us to see the kind of love that transforms. And the third allows us to see a love that provides. And the fourth, the fourth one that we're going to look in brief at is the love that questions in despair, in darkness, in difficulty, in sorrow. The fifth window allows us to see a love that suffers, and the sixth window allows us to see a love that triumphs, and the seventh window allows us to see a love that surrenders. But this is one of those windows that is extremely difficult to see because it's been preceded by three hours of pitch blackness. As a matter of fact, we learn that there was a darkness that descended over the cross of Calvary. As in verse 33, it says when the sixth hour, which is about noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. There was this strange blanket that enveloped at least that part of the earth. There's an account of it given in antiquity by Phlegon of Trales. He was a freedman under the emperor Hadrian who ruled and reigned from about 117 to about 134 A.D., and the church historian Eusebius borrows prolifically from him in his writings. He records in the year A.D. 33, which is really, he says, in the fourth year of the 20 of the 202nd Olympiad. We can actually trace that. There was a great and remarkable eclipse of the sun above any that had ever happened before. At the sixth hour, the day turned into darkness of night so that the stars were seen in heaven. There was an earthquake in Bithynia, which overthrew many houses in the city of Nicaea, which is in modern Turkey. Phlegon attributes the darkness to an eclipse, which is, by the way, impossible, given that the Passover was taking place during the time of a full moon. We're not told if it came slowly or suddenly, whether it affected part of the land or all of the land. Phlegon attributes, like I said, the darkness to the eclipse, but he says that it stretches over the entire Roman Empire. But Dionysius says that he also saw this in Heliopolis in Egypt. And was reported to have exclaimed, either the God of nature, the creator, is suffering or the universe is dissolving right before our eyes. Cyprian said, the sun was constrained to withdraw its rays and close his eyes that he might not be compelled to look upon the crime. Chrysostom said, Quote, the creature could not bear the wrong done to its creator. Therefore, the sun withdrew its rays that he might not behold the deeds of the wicked. In real life, in real time, in real history, a darkness descended over the earth. In Mark's gospel, chapter 15, verse 34, Jesus Reportedly says, Eloi, Eloi, lava sabachthani, which is the Aramaic of my God, 
My God, why have you forsaken me? And Mark, by the way, uses the aorist tense. This is not really all that important to you, but it's the Greek verb denoting something that's completed in the past. Something Jesus says that 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 has taken place in the past, which has caused some Bible teachers to wonder during the time of silence from 12 o'clock noon to three o'clock in the afternoon, when this utter darkness descended upon the land, it would seem that once the darkness started to dissipate, that Jesus, when the light begins to return, makes his statement. Does this cry represent the agonized cry of unprecedented suffering? Or is it the glorious cry of a glad relief? People wonder the fellowship between the father and son broken by sin. Is it now restored? My God, my God, why did it could read you forsake me? Everyone knows that he is quoting Psalm chapter 22. In Alfred Lord Tennyson's famous Charge of the Light Brigade, many of you are familiar with it. I was forced to learn it in school. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward. Forward the Light Brigade. It says, theirs is not to reason why. 600 men, they ride fearlessly into the valley of death. And so he says, theirs is not to reason why. Theirs is but to do and die. But Jesus does question Jesus does ask why. Why is he forsaken by his father? Why does the obedient son who has submitted to his father in every single way. Why does he experience desertion? Martin Luther wrote of this passage, God forsaken of God. In the loss of God's presence. Or is this the loss of the sense of his presence? We all know or we've all experienced at least in part what it means to have a darkness sweep over the surface of our soul. All of us have experienced at least at one time or another a sense in which the presence of God or the favor of God or the smile of God is lifted from our circumstances. And we have no explanation. Dr. Joseph Parker was a very famous pastor of the city temple in London at the same time that Charles Spurgeon preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And Parker's much beloved wife had died quite unexpectedly and the congregation wondered what he was going to talk about because he elected to actually preach the following Sunday. And he chose as his passage. The passage that we've just read. And he began his sermon by saying that in the hour of deep grief, that there was a why in the heart and the lips of Jesus when he came to die. And he communicated with his congregation. That the same heavy darkness was upon his own heart and the same question of why. The repeated testimony of great preachers is the utter frustration and conviction that this passage brings. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, quote, at the commencement of this study, I would 
place on record, not idly and not for the mere sake of doing so, but under the urgency of a great conviction that I'm deeply conscious of approaching things too high, too profound for any finality of statement. He admitted, no matter what I say, it certainly isn't going to be complete. Bishop J.C. Ryle writes, quote, there is a deep mystery in these words which no man can fathom. They express the real pressure on a soul of the enormous burden of the world's sin. And by the way, this statement is recorded in Matthew and Mark, but it's the only statement from the cross that's recorded in Matthew and Mark, which should cause each and every person to pause just for a moment because of the incredible dramatic effect that it had on both writers. Matthew and Mark link the themes of darkness and desertion. Whatever else the darkness meant, it was evidence of God's judgment on sin. Jesus was on the cross, the bearer of sin. Jesus hung in the place where judgment must fall. And we're told that once the darkness began to lift, he speaks. And Herbert Lockyer in his wonderful book, Seven Words of Love, addressing this passage says, quote, No words can fully express what transpired during those three awful hours because no finite mind can imagine all that the Savior endured during them, save that the outer darkness typified and illustrated an inner darkness culminating in a cry of desolation reverently touching the fringe of this great mystery we can say that the darkness over the land symbolized the hiding of the consciousness of the father's presence from the human soul of Jesus as he bore our sin in his body on the cross Jesus was made to experience the essential separation caused by Sin. And before he shouted, it is finished. He was made sin. Not a sinner. During those dark hours, sin in some unknown way took possession of all of his human faculties. And he pays the penalty of sin by his death. And the loudness of his cry reveals the intensity of the anguish as it came from the one who knew he was tasting the dark abyss of death for every sinner. For every sinner. Death and the curse were in his cup. And so Jesus quotes Psalm 22. Why have you forsaken me? But in Psalm 22, it gives the answer to the Savior's question. In Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2 and 3, he he gives the answer. Why have you forsaken me? Because you are holy. The cross vindicates and satisfies God's holiness and provides grace and salvation so that the most wretched sinner can enter into the place of forgiveness, of wholeness. 
of wellness. When Jesus quotes the psalm, he repeats the agony and the mystery and the distress of people who don't necessarily understand the specifics of our experiences in the world. Job, who represents suffering at his at its worst in the big book About him, he asks the whys and the wherefores. Why didn't I die in my mother's womb? Why didn't I give up the ghost in my mother's belly? Jeremiah 5.19, why, 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 Lord, have you done these things to us? And so every person who's ever asked, why did you take my son? Why did you take my daughter? Why did you take my children? Why did you take my job? Why did you take this from me? It makes perfect sense that we would want explanations. But we all live under the discipline of ignorance, pretending to know and understand what we really don't know and understand, and then worse, forgetting what we do know. The crowd had mocked Jesus. Who were these people? Don't you remember? These are the people busy celebrating the Passover. Remember, these are religious leaders. The religious leaders mocked Jesus. Yes, the criminals mocked Jesus. Yes, the crowds hurled insults and ridicule. He saved others. Let him save himself. And the darkness that descended on the cross that day seemed like light compared to the darkness that was inside of the human heart. A darkness capable of hating an innocent man, of insulting an innocent man of hurting an innocent man, of killing an innocent man. And you know what we might think? We might, in some sort of self-righteous hypocrisy, say, well, we expect the Roman executioners to be cruel and calculating. After all, they're Romans. We expect the religious leaders to be pharisaical hypocrites, pretending holiness on the outside and experiencing a crushing emptiness on the inside. We expect the criminals to scream and blame because we know in part it comes from a place of pain. But the people who passed by are strangely familiar because when you look into their face, the thing that is going to disturb you the most, it looks surprisingly like yours. These are people who are out and about getting ready to celebrate a religious holiday. These are people who are out and about, who have a lasting legacy of reading the scriptures in the original language, of going to the temple on a regular basis, of offering sacrifice and alms to the poor. These people are the most religious people that you would have ever met. And we might be tempted to think that Those were first century Jews and we're 21st century Christians and we could never, ever, ever be tempted to do what they did. To think what they thought. To say what they said. But the cross forces us to hold a mirror to our souls. It forces us to look into that mirror and see the reflection. It forces us to ask and answer the question. What is it that you see? 
what is it that you're looking at? What is that terrible dark place? Carl Jung called it a shadow. Christians speak of it as the sin nature. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who spent years in a Soviet prison camp, wrote in his incredible book, The Gulag Archipelago, quote, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessarily only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? In order for sin to go, you have to go. In order for sin to be cleansed forever, you would have to be gone forever. So how do we explain the impulses? Not just of the profoundly wicked, not just the shooter at Sandy Hook or the crazy man in Aurora. How do we explain not just simply Hitler, but the entire German people who have participated in the Holocaust? How do we understand the genocide in Russia by Stalin and the genocide in China by Mao and the genocide in Cambodia by the Khmer Rouge and the Hutu in Rwanda against the Tutsi? How is it that we can understand what's going on right now in our own deeply divided country? Where we are just moments away from a spark that could easily divide our country even further against one another. And how do you explain yourself? The anger, the rage. We know that selfishness and pride and fear and ignorance can make us explode with rage and hate. And we see others worthy of our scorn, worse, worse, worthy of our cruelty and injustice. And so we dehumanize them and we scorn them. Because they don't share our political views and they don't share our economic views and sometimes they don't share our theological views. And instead of wondering just how much we should love them, we play with the idea of just how much we can hate them and still be okay with God. And sometimes we experience what it feels like to be abandoned by God. And that's exactly what Jesus felt. In what sense? Hanging from a cross in excruciating pain. We can certainly see how pain might crowd out the sense of God's presence. But make no mistake about it. It wasn't the pain That crowded out the sense of God's presence. It was sin. It was your sin. It was my sin. And the truth is. It makes perfect sense that Jesus would pray a prayer. 
of experiencing the feeling of forsakenness that everyone inevitably feels at some time in their life. When I was walking through the columnade, someone asked me, Hey, how's it going? Are you having a good day? And you know what? I am having a good day. Isn't it interesting that Good Friday is called Good Friday? Was it a good day for Jesus? It was a black day. It was a wicked day. It was an indescribably horrific day. It was a dark place and a painful place. It was a place that would, for the first time, and the only time in his experience, that he would feel forsaken. I hope you're in a good place. But you might be in a dark place. And you might be in a painful place. But I want you to know something. Not only does Jesus know what it's like to be in a dark place and a painful place, he also knows what it means to suffer and to sacrifice for others. And in a dark place and in a desperate place and in a painful place, do you know what Jesus does? He prays. And he worships. And it could very well be that in a dark place and in a painful place, you might be tempted to run away from God. And you might be tempted to run in a different direction. You might be tempted to stop praying and stop worshiping altogether. And the psalm that he quotes is filled with prophetic significance. But make no mistake about it. It's a song. And by the way, the religious observant Jews who were walking by would have been as familiar with Psalm 22 as you are with Amazing Grace. If you heard someone all of a sudden start to sing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. You would know the words. You would know the verses. You would know that after my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer and by night, but find no rest. Jesus isn't simply singing his favorite song when he dies. He's thinking about you when Jesus is dying. He worships and he sings and he thinks about you. By the way, the darkness will come. Maybe later, but some of you, it's already come. 
You know the tearing emptiness that comes when your wife or your husband or your loved one has been ripped away from you. You understand the terrifying feelings of depression and sorrow when you wonder if the pain itself will drive away the very sense of God's presence. And that's the time to sing and to worship. It's Friday. But Sunday's going to be here soon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we've gathered around the cross, as we've taken the time to pause and consider, to listen again, to see again, to hear again, to witness again, the testimony that our Savior provides for us. Lord, we can't help but thinking of that amazing analysis given by Paul the Apostle. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We glorify you, Lord, that in Christ's death, We see a brief glimpse of our own. But Lord, when even pain itself seems to drive the very presence of your presence. That Lord, we would remember with grace. That we would remember with mercy. That we would remember the promise that you would never leave us or forsake us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing. Let's worship.